0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we're going to start with this handout on the side that has fewer words. The Four Establishments of Mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. Thank you. So there's, you know, there's one side that has lots and lots of words, and there's one that has a medium-sized amount of words, the one that has a little bit less. So on that first page, on the yellow handout, I, in this, um, I forgot the exact words, so I put it, like the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, I said that there are these four like domains of practice. Well, now this is expanding this a little bit. So there's the body, the feelings, mind, and dhammas. Does everybody see this? And then the second column are what are the different types of contemplations that are within that? So to, to, for breathing, that's what I was reading to you guys at the very beginning of uh, knowing an in, in breath and knowing an out breath and knowing whether it's long. That's the breathing. For the, um, just to give you a sense of what this is about, um, for the one about the postures, the second one, I'll just read a little bit so you get a sense of what's actually in there. When walking, one knows I am walking. When standing, one knows I am standing. When sitting, one knows I am sitting when lying down, one knows I'm lying down. Or one knows accordingly however one's body is disposed. In this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. So what I just read to you was the instructions specific for the body, but the postures, and then I added the refrain on the end. So you can see this. So in the body, breathing um, is our guide meditation, but then there's postures. Underneath that is activities and anatomical parts for elements and corpse. If you want to know what is inside that part of breathing, postures, activities, anatomical parts for elements, that's the um, opposite page. The other side is all the gory detail for just the body Right. I didn't um, include it for um, all the other dhammas. So can you see how we've gone from the very general to more specific, to more specific, to more specific? So this um, all the um, the sub-elements of the practice is um, included as well as the practice. But for now, I'd like to go back to uh, the simpler side, and let's talk about that there's these four Domains, what we call these four establishments of mindfulness. These um, sometimes people call it the four foundations: body, feelings, mind, and the dhammas. Maybe there's one thing that I'll point out to you. There's a particular schema here. Starts with the body, ends with dhammas, goes through feelings and mind in between. There's a reason for this. We can speculate there's a reason for this. The body is more accessible to us. It's, more, it's where we start. It's where we teach often, you know, especially breathing, right? It's the very first one there. The reason why it's the beginning is because it's a little bit easier to be mindful of the breath. That's why we teach it. That's why we practice it. So it's just starting with kind of more experiential more and more accessible. It has both of those qualities. That is, it's like something we can feel. It's tangible. And something that we can do at the beginning of our practice. All the way, if we go down to the Dhammas, hindrances, aggregates, sense fears, like what are these things? Right? Unless you're kind of schooled in the Buddhist teachings, you don't even know what these are. So these are more conceptual. These are like related to Buddhist ideas as opposed to being more like tangible. And it's also later in one's practice usually when people um, start coming to Dalons like this and they start to even like learn about things. Probably the very first time you meditated you didn't, you weren't, didn't care about these things called Dhammas or something like that. So one way that I, um, I'll say a few words about the Dhammas, that I uh, understand Dhammas, which, again, some people call mind objects, and some people just say phenomena. Um, it's like uh, putting on Buddhist goggles. That is, that you look at your experience through, oh, is this a hindrance? Is this uh, part of the seven factors of awakening? Is this... Um, how is my sense, my senses, what, what, what word do we, hear? sense sphere being affected? So it's a, um, a way to, like you apply some of these Buddhist teachings that you may hear in other contexts to your mindfulness practice. Or maybe to put it the other way, maybe just as you kind of get steeped in mindfulness practice or as you get more and more mindful and more and more quiet and steady, you start to notice, oh yeah, this is the experience of a sound. That's a sense space. This is as opposed to an experience in my body. And you you really start to notice the subtle differences between these. Or, oh yeah, this is tranquility. This is a factor of awakening. This is something that supports to... uh, um, to greater and greater freedom. I'm going to cultivate this, develop this, this tranquility. Or you may notice, oh my goodness, this is sloth and torpor. I'm about to fall asleep. This doesn't lead to greater freedom. So in some ways, how we kind of saw like the gatekeeper earlier, that was, oh, I forgot what the words were, acquaintances and strangers, I think, for things that are good and bad. For in this way, kind of like the Dhammas, is a little bit we start to notice what, uh, what things that arise, what are things worth cultivating and developing and that support our practice, and what things don't. But you can hear plenty of Dharma talks on these topics, hindrances, aggregates, sense fears, awakening factors, noble truths. Awakening Factors will be a year-long program that begins. I I think I said this in the fall. The hindrances. I think we're going to teach a course on these coming up too. So just to let you know, I'm not going to talk about what they all are here, but it's kind of part of the experience here. Also, we could ask, well... I never heard of these other three. I've heard of mindfulness of breathing. What's up with the mind and feeling and dhammas? Do we need them? Do I have to do that to get awakened? It turns out that you can find in the suttas and the scriptures both that just one single practice can take one all the way to liberation. Mindfulness of breathing, for example. And you can also find passages that suggest that it's good to develop all four of these different, to cultivate a few of the four. And you can find Dharma teachers who say you only need one. Often it's mindfulness of breathing. And you can also find Dharma teachers that say, no, you should cultivate mindfulness. You can cultivate uh, many of these different ones. And then to point to that um, in particular, for those of you may have already noticed, I have these footnotes that there are different schools, there's different lineages, there's different traditions within, even, you know, kind of within this practice. So the Mahasi Sayadaw, or Upandita lineage, emphasizes mindfulness of the air element, which is mindfulness of the body, but is um, second from the bottom, it's four elements there. So they, in that tradition... Which Gil trained in, I've done a number of that training. Andrea trained in that tradition, also. there's this emphasis on like the movement of the air through the body is kind of the rhetoric. The experience is just like feeling your abdomen moving. But the, they are talking about in the terms of an element. In contrast to um, Andrea Fella, she teaches this style in Utejania. I should say, I'll just say this little bit. This letter U okay, is like a term of respect, kind of like mister in uh, the Burmese language. So like Mr. Tejaniya. These are Burmese uh, meditation masters. Andrea Fella has um, practiced with Utejaniya in Burma and she has brought back and she teaches here often rather than mindfulness of breathing or the air element, mindfulness of the mind. And he also points back to the same uh, scripture for, Satipatthana Sutta, but just the third establishment rather than the first establishment. And so I would say for those of you, who have, if you've been in the Dharma scene for a while, you kind of get to f- notice like, oh yeah, okay, this teacher or this group of teachers tends to emphasize more the mind, and these people over here tend to emphasize more the body. But there's scriptural support for all of them. And probably those teachers who emphasize different things probably try to do it because they've had their own experiences, right? It worked for them, so they're teaching it. And there's a number of people who do both. For myself, I've practiced a lot with the body and with um, the mind most recently. And you can see with the mind, it's, let's, um, it reads like this. And how does one, with regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind? Here, one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. On and on and on. It's very simple. Just to know the state of your mind. Often this gets um, interpreted is that we can kind of feel when our minds have a certain contraction or tightness about it versus when our minds are really expanded and kind of spacious. It's kind of like a felt sense. When is our minds really busy and when are they a little bit more relaxed? That's how we can um, interpret some of these. And of course lust and anger and delusion are not things that lead to greater freedom. So it's helpful to know, oh, I'm in the midst of experiencing lust, anger, and or delusion. It's also important here, though, I think, which is really fascinating, is also to notice when they don't exist in the mind. This can really support us to see like, oh, yeah, I'm not angry. I was angry earlier. I'm not angry right now. That can really help support, A, that anger does end or whatever it may be. But also, the, um, yeah, sometimes the absence of things are, it may be really subtle, but we should, it doesn't mean it's not important or significant, that the absence of things can somehow somehow lend to some ease, to some well-being, contentment and this ease well-being contentment kind of supports being mindful and seeing kind of being able to see the maybe be settled and then see the arising and passing starting to see the unsatisfactory nature which can lead to letting go so I think it's important here often we think about mindfulness as just you know being with what's right here in front of us and that is a key part of the practice But it also includes to also see what's not there. Which, of course, requires a little bit of memory to remember. Like, oh, yeah, there used to be uh, anger, and the anger's not there now. I used to be concentrated, and I'm not concentrated now. So we uh, often, uh, and it definitely is, mindfulness definitely is just being with the experience what's happening but as the practice progresses we start to use our thinking mind we start to use in terms of uh I'm using this expression thinking mind to refer to um to have some discernment to have some ability to do two things recognize oh this way leads to greater freedom this way doesn't this is here wasn't here before i don't know it's not like uh, mindfulness isn't, uh, mindfulness in, the, in this Buddhist uh, setting with regard to going towards freedom includes more than just being with what's there. I talked about this in terms of the definition and the refrain, and we can see how like, even to recognize the absence of things requires more than just knowing what's in front of us. Oh, yeah. So in the footnotes, I also I forgot about uh, Goenka, which is also another really um, prominent um, tradition. And they emphasize uh, mindfulness, the second one, mindfulness of Vedana. But they call that sensation rather than feeling, which is a legitimate translation, of course. So we can see that, right, these are all uh, from Theravada Buddhism, all three of these, uh, inspired by Mahasi Sayadaw, Utejaneya, Asengoenka, all three of them, teachers come here, teach at IMC, but it's like different parts of uh, the same um, sutta, just they're choosing to emphasize. And maybe you don't blame them because there's a lot of stuff in the sutta, right? All these different uh, sub-practices or practices. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Um, can you use that microphone, Ganesh?
1: So a um, question on Goenka's uh, traditions. I've been listening to a lot of his um, ways of teaching. And uh, sensation, I thought it refers to body sensations. Probably it includes Vedana, the feeling tone also. but. Um, the way he starts off is he says there are two sides. One is, um, for example, anger. Um, it has a side in the two sides of a coin. One is in the body. So he says, pay attention to what happens in the body, those sensations which come up. And then over time, he go- goes on to talk about the others, the Vedana that comes. So uh, here, sensation encompasses something bigger, right? That will be body sensations plus the feeling tone. Exactly. OK.
0: And we can push down that blue, puffy thing. Yeah, there we go. Thank so, you. Does that help?
2: Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I really love this handout. Um, I, I have a question about, um, when I read this, I have a question about emotions. Because, you know, Giel teaches mindfulness of emotions. And so um, it seems like it's in t- sitting in two categories here that um, there is some in the feelings, uh, maybe the bodily component that he was describing. But it feels to me that what he calls the mind is also the emotional mind because he's talking about anger and lust. This is kind of what we typically call emotions.
0: Can you clarify that? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up, Sylvia. I think this is an excellent point. Where are emotions in here? Yeah, so our current understanding, the way that we interpret it, is that back in ancient India, they had a different understanding about... uh, Ganesh is nodding his head. About... um, the What emotions are and what comprises them, and the role that they have in our lives and stuff, so in the west we have the, we kind of have the separation between heart and mind, and that the um, emotions are um, and they certainly are so critical uh, and such an integral part of our lives, but they just um, didn't divide experiences the same way, or divide their understanding of the human experience in the same way that we do. And so, if you come to here, IMC, if you t- uh, when we teach mindfulness, we teach four weeks. You think like, oh, okay, there's four establishments of mindfulness. Maybe it's that, but it's not here uh, at IMC. We've kind of like reinterpreted this. To do, We do breath and then body and then emotions and then thinking, which is a little bit different than the mind here, right? Here, this is concentrated or liberated or diluted, so a little different than thoughts. So my answer to you, Sylvie, is that um, um, I don't think emotions were understood in the same way or expressed in the same way back in ancient India at the time of the Buddha. I think that's one and I would say a second that maybe they didn't have the same importance or the same integral role or under or maybe I'll just say that importance and role as they do now here in the west. Ganesh <laughs> is agreeing. Do you want to use the microphone? How do you reconcile is your question.
2: Now we live in the West in in this time. So how do you reconcile, you know, our current vocabulary or taxonomy with this one? That was essentially my question.
0: I see. I see. So uh, we don't try to make, let's see, um, usually we teach uh, mindfulness of emotions And one way that we teach it is to notice the physical correlate of the emotion as a way to really be with it when you're really sad rather than getting lost in the ideas about sadness or the the recurring thoughts that occur with sadness, um, which are so slippery and off you can go in them, is to feel, feel the heaviness in the shoulders, feel the... Uh, maybe the pressure behind the eyes, whatever that is. So often when we teach it, we kind of separate them out emotion between what's happening in the body and what's happening with thinking. And so that's how we teach it. But we aren't, um, um, I would say, I don't, I think all contemporary Dharma teachers kind of teach emotions, acknowledging that it doesn't map perfectly onto here into a category. Is that helpful?
2: yeah it is I mean it feels that um, for me like I would it overlaps three categories actually because there is really this physical sensation there is a component in the mind but there is also a component in the Dhammas when we actually um, associate a concept of certain emotion to particular mindset mind state
0: And what you're pointing to, thank you, Sylvia, this is fantastic, what you're pointing to, some German teachers will say, you know what, you just need to do mindfulness of breathing because, uh, for example, mindfulness of breathing, because you'll just start to notice all these things, how they're related, and emotions will come up, and you'll start to notice, oh, actually, it does have these different elements, and it's completely artificial to have these four different camps and these four different practices. (coughs) So then that begs the question, well, why are there four different things here? Why are there these four different establishments of mindfulness? Why did they take the time to do this? Does anybody want to suggest a reason why? Or can you postulate? or like, What's the advantage of having these broken up into four categories, even if now we don't quite agree with the categories, or maybe they're not the same as how we would divide them? Do you want to use that?
1: Probably that... Um um, our temperaments are all different. That's why the Buddha had all these uh, different options. Apparently, Gil said there, the Buddha in his teachings, he talk, taught about 48 or 50 different ways of uh, practicing mindfulness. So um, he gives options, variety, depending on people's temperament. That's,
0: that's great. I'm looking through my notes because I have the notes about like which temperaments are for which type, because for this very thing... <laughs> That was a little uh, bit a different of a, um, a little, little bit after the time of the Buddha. It's in the commentaries. Let's see if I, um, if I have this here. Um, oh, yes. So this is the commentary. So this was written sometime after the Buddha, but still, you know, more than a thousand years ago. Those people who are tending to crave, who really want things or leaning forward, um, it would be helpful for them to work with uh, the body and feelings. And those who tend to be intellectual and want to think about things should practice primarily with the mind and with dhammas. Like, okay, maybe we could say that. But then they also say, well, those who are, tend to be, they uh, use this expression, quick natured to work with contemplations of the feelings and dhammas. Or if you're a little bit more measured and circumspect, then you can do with body and mind. And so Ganesh used this word temperament, but we could also say, well, there are just times during the day when we're a little bit more uh, settled and maybe we're a little bit more measured or a little bit more, if I'll use this word, flighty. Or maybe we are um, at a time in our practice when we've had a lot of experience and now we're curious about the intellectual side. Or maybe we entered intellectually. So there can be, um, we shouldn't say that only we only have one temperament. There may be different times we have a different temperament. So that could be one uh, reason why there's four. Any other ideas? Or? yeah, And you have a microphone here?
1: I think just uh, because it was a verbal tradition to remember it, right, to to help and, and aid in reciting it helps yeah. to categorize it in, hierarchy, in a hierarchical manner.
0: Yeah, right? It's helpful to have a list. That's why we have so many lists in Buddhism. Yeah, it's oral tradition. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I also think that... Uh, When you
1: meditate for longer time, you can see that all those are just different angles of looking at the same thing. Mm. But when you start, uh, then it helps uh, to differentiate between different things, different uh, concepts, different experiences. And I kind of think that you are right, that for different people, different approaches are more helpful for understanding
0: yeah, yeah, right? There's no reason why we have to make this hard. We can start where it's easiest in a way that makes sense to us. And as our practice progresses over the years, over the decades, you know, different uh, of these establishments of mindfulness may be more meaningful to us than other ones. Maybe we'll meet a teacher who is a fantastic teacher who really emphasizes one particular one that we hadn't emphasized before and we're influenced by the teacher and we do that. But there's one more reason why I like to think that there's four is that this is the way I'm interpreting it is that, um, that in the Buddhist teachings this was everything. This was everything. body, of f- the feelings we didn't talk too much about this um, but the I, are things pleasant or unpleasant and the mind and the concepts phenomena and how phenomena are related to Buddhist teachings that's everything and so it's just a reminder that we can be mindful of everything and we may you know, maybe unintentionally not to be mindful of those things that we don't like, we don't want to know about or just seem too complicated or for whatever reason. And one advantage of specifically try uh, saying, "Okay, I'm going to practice with all four of these is we just start to notice, oh, yeah, I hadn't noticed this uh, the unpleasant feeling and how I respond to that uh, every time of you know certain experiences or something like that. Or I hadn't noticed how, with these seven factors of awakening, I really uh, am not uh, cultivating tranquility. I'm just—I notice when it arrives, but I don't do anything to help support it, or something like that. So, another reason why there might be all four is just to help remind us or know that all of these different ways in which we can apply mindfulness and that may be supportive. Okay, so we have just a few minutes, and if I'll open it up for some questions, we can. See. Can somebody? Um, if push the thermostat, put the red arrow up just a few so that we don't freeze to death in the Arctic zone. Thank you, I appreciate it. It'll turn off in just a minute or two.
1: I'm also wondering if the four aspects is, correspond with the four elements, which is um, earth, fire, fire, air, and um, water. So I think in Hindu traditions, and Ganesh can talk about that, that like fire is related to the mind, water is related to the feelings, earth is related to the body, and air is related to, I guess, laws or something, what dhamma
0: is. Interesting, interesting. Actually, you'll find the four elements is the second to last one here in body. And instead of what you were saying, let's see... um, Water is cohesion. Earth is solidity. Fire is temperature, and air is movement. So they have a little bit different interpretation of about that, and it's part of body, and the recognition that we have these elements within us—things that you know, earth, air, water, and body. Okay, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm just going to say a little bit, like this, the back of this. I think I mentioned it before. You'll see this. This is the details of what some of these practices are of the body. And if we just look on this left column, it starts with awareness of breathing. And the second to the last is analysis of the body into its elements, which we just talked about. And, this, and then the um, last one, Contemplation of a corpse in stages of decay, right? We don't talk about this at IMC, right? But that's there. But I just want to highlight the difference between awareness, analysis, and contemplation of a corpse of decay, which is like bringing to mind something. So, in the Buddhist tradition, is as the practice progresses, is more than just being present with what's happening. It definitely starts with being present with what's happening, but it includes all these other aspects in a really such a rich, rich way that can really affect all areas of our lives, all areas of our lives. So it's three oh one. I want to uh, respect your time. Um, I'll stay up here if you have more questions or comments. And in two weeks, Richard Shankman will be here. Maybe I'll, some of the parting words is I'll say is that um, mindfulness of the body, and here's all of these different ones here, but mindfulness of the body is a key component for concentration. It's kind of really a foundational practice for concentration. And concentration is what um, we're going to talk about in two weeks. Okay, thank you.